0: Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be with you. If we haven't met, my name is Blake Sherman. I'm the young adult minister. And uh, oh, thanks. A little shout out. And um, I'm so glad to be here to talk with you. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 8. You can start making your way there. Heads up, it's before 2 Samuel. So go ahead and start making your way to 1 Samuel 8. Um, And while you're getting there, I'll tell you a story. So I read this book called The Culture Code, and it was about what makes a strong culture. And they tell this story about how in 1975, President Burke, who was the president of the healthcare company Johnson & Johnson, uh, decided to call together 35 of his senior managers. So he called these senior managers together, got them in a room, and the purpose of this impromptu meeting was to discuss something called the credo. Now the credo was basically Johnson & Johnson's mission statement. And so uh, it started like this, it said, uh, we believe our first responsibility is to doctors, nurses, patients, mothers, and fathers, and all people that use our products and services. So that's kind of how it started. And it's not that it was particularly bad or that people were rebelling against the credo or anything like that. Burke just noticed that people didn't seem to really care about it. Uh, that it was just kind of in the peripheral. And he was just saying, hey, if we actually believe this, then let's operate like we believe it. But if we don't believe it, let's change it or let's, let's just get rid of it completely. But we gotta figure out what we actually believe and who we actually are if we're gonna move forward. So they all gathered together to discuss this mission statement. Uh, first person, probably someone from the old guard said, the credo needs to be an absolute. We gotta operate by the credo. And then someone fired back and said, well, that's kind of ridiculous. We're a company after all, we need to make profit. That doesn't sound like a good way to make profit. Maybe we should change it. Then someone said, well, can't, can't we do both? And then this whole philosophical discussion broke out. Um, fast forward to the end, and they decided, let's recommit to the credo. We think that it sums up who we are as a company. We'll, we'll stick to it. And then every year or so, Burke would have this conversation again with his senior managers, and every year they would recommit to the credo. Let's say, we're, that's what we exist for. Fast forward seven years later, 1982, President Burke gets a call from Chicago. He picks up the phone, and they say, There are six people dead in Chicago because they took extra strength Tylenol and it was laced with cyanide. Panic started. Police were out in the street with bullhorns warning people, do not take Tylenol. Boy Scouts were going from door to door saying, do not take Tylenol. The next day, someone else said there was a seventh victim. They went overnight like a flick of a switch from being a provider of medicine to being a provider of poison. It was a moment of crisis for the company. They formed this task team to try and figure out how to respond. All these experts were saying, hey, what you need to do is you need to recall all of the product in Chicago, because that's where all the deaths are happening. You need to recall all the products, not the nation. We would lose so much money and it would be awful for PR. So just recall the Chicago product. A couple of days later, Johnson Johnson announces that they're gonna recall every product in the nation. Uh, they lost $100 million, it's not great for PR. And when President Burke was interviewed and they said, why did you make such a drastic decision? He said, our first responsibility is to doctors, nurses, patients, fathers, and mothers, and everyone who takes our products and services. You know, the thing is, the reason this book was talking about how they had a strong culture and that they could operate in the moment of crisis is because they had already decided who they were. They decided what story they lived in. And so whenever they hit crisis, they knew how to respond. The first question that they were asking in this crisis was, okay, our responsibility is to doctors, nurses, and patients. How do we we respond if that's our first question? Now, we on the outside might say, you made a huge mistake. Financially, that was a a bad move, but that wasn't the first question. You might say, well, PR, that was a bad move, but that wasn't the first question. The first question is, who is our responsibility to and how are we going to respond? And I say, I say that story because I believe that the church, and particularly the American church, is in crisis. Um, and if you might not agree with me, but ju- if you don't agree with me, then just know we're about to be in crisis. We're about to really hit it, okay? Um, about to be in crisis. And you know, there are a thousand voices, just like in that moment, there are a thousand voices inside and outside the church saying, this is what we should be about. This is the way forward. We're in crisis. This is how we get out. But they might be asking the wrong starting question. You know, if I pulled this room and I said, what should the church do? We would get a lot of different answers. There'd be some of us that said, we just gotta get more relevant, tighter jeans, you know. <laughs> Maybe there's some people who say, hey, we gotta, we gotta double down on tradition. We need to double down on ritual, get the hymns. We need more tradition, Maybe you say, well, we just got to steady the ship. Let's not rock the boat. We just need consistency. And maybe you're just like, no, actually, we need to rock the boat. We need justice. And all of those are good questions. Maybe not the skinny jean thing. But maybe all of those are really good questions, but they might not be the first question. And the first question is, how are we to be faithful to God in this moment? That's how we operate in Christ. That's our first question. Because he is our king, and we're to be faithful to him. Now, the story that we're reading about today is about Israel. And just to remind you what Paul said last week, just want to reiterate, Israel, do not equate that with the United States or any other country. They are not the same. Israel is the people of God. You, you are the people of God. This is a story about the people of God and how they got in crisis, but we're going to see that they didn't handle the crisis well. Um, So this is basically a story of how not to operate. We're going to see that they started asking the wrong questions and it led to the wrong answers. All right, y'all excited? I'm excited, let's dig in. All right, 1 Samuel 8. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways, just like Eli, right? They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. There's this problem, this crisis. So the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel at Ramah and they said to him, you are old, it's a rough start, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. So basically what they're saying is, hey, here's this crisis, our leaders are falling apart. Your sons are awful and you're about to die and we're gonna be left with them. This is a crisis Appoint a king for us like the nations have. Verse six, but when they said, give us a king to lead lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods so they are doing to you. Now listen to them but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So what went wrong? Clearly they made a wrong move because Jesus says, they're not rejecting you as king, they're rejecting me as their king. They're forsaking me for other gods, just like they've always done going all the way back to Egypt. So what went wrong? Is it that they asked for a king? Partly, Um, but it's not an awful request because we know that God was gonna use kings in his plan for a long time. Going back to Abraham, he told Abraham, in your lineage, I will pull kings out of it. And we know that Jesus would come out of the Davidic line. So God was gonna use the monarchy. So it's not the worst thing. The worst thing is not that they say, appoint for us a king, It's it's the line after it, just as all the other nations have. That's the worst line. It's the motivation underlying it. Give us a king just as the other nations have. If we know anything about the people of God, it's that they are to be set apart from the nations. They are to be distinct from the nations. They're to be unique. In the language of Jesus, you are salt. You're different. You're unique. You are salt. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it ever be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. We are to be different. We're to be unique. We're not supposed to look at the nations and get our ideas from them, but that's what they started to do. They started to look at the nations and to see, okay, what are they doing over there? Okay, they got a king. That might, that might work for us. You know, maybe the elders, because they've been growing in wealth, they were looking over there and said, a centralized government could really help us out. We're a little disorganized. That government could really help. Or maybe they were looking over at the Philistines and seeing their mounting military. and They said, we'd really benefit from a king to start growing our military because we won't be able to fight back when God is the one that fights for them. They started looking at the nations and the scary thing about that is that whenever something else gets your attention other than God, it will start to form you. In the language of the poet Mary Oliver, uh, attention is the beginning of devotion. Whenever you start to look at something, that it starts to set your heart on a trajectory, and that's where your devotion begins to form. And so they started looking at this, and they started getting other ideas. And the scary thing about it today is that we don't have to go climb a hill to go look at the nation's. Like, you don't have to go on a journey to go look at the nations. It's on your phone, it's on your TV, it's on your screen. You swim in a world of story and advertisement and truth claims about how the world actually is. All of us do. The nations are at our fingertips. And so we have to be careful about what we give our attention to. You know, there's this study that came out recently from the Barna Group, and it said that the average teenager today um, the average amount of screen time that they have a day on entertainment, so this isn't work or school, just entertainment, is 7.22 hours a day. And we're like, that's ridiculous. Well, you're pretty close, whoever you are. <laughs> you're pretty close. When I told that to Bob Johns, our youth minister, said, that's almost a full-time job. And it is. And that's kind of scary, right? That should alarm us because if, if things that we give our attention to form us, then some of us have full-time jobs being formed in the ways of the nations. We have a full-time being formed in the ways of the world, and then you look at the time that you give your attention to God, and that is kind of terrifying. We need to be on guard. We need to be watching these things. That we're, we swim in a world of stories, so we need to do a good job of curating them. There's an author, Justin Whitmore, early, and he argues that maybe one of the new disciplines for a modern Christian today is that we need to curate our stories, curate our media. Listen to what he says. He says, If stories are as formational as the Bible, and common experience would tell us they are, this now means that we live in a world of competing types of formation. Streaming like busted faucets everywhere we look. He says streaming for a reason. Streaming like busted faucets everywhere we look. We are guaranteed to be formed in consumption unless we ruthlessly pursue curation. We have, to, we have to realize that the things that we give our attention to will form us. You don't live in a neutral world. Nothing is benign. Everything will shape and form you into a trajectory. It's just a matter of, is it back to the true king, which is God, or is it what the nations are doing? Because it will start to pull you in that direction. I'm not a Luddite, okay? I'm not saying we need to get rid of all technology. I wrote this sermon on a computer, I'm not saying that. I'm saying we need to be mindful of how it shapes us because it definitely does. I was thinking we might need to reclaim the refrain of Job. Remember what Job said? He made, I've made a covenant with my eyes. He was talking about looking lustfully at a woman, but maybe we need to take that refrain on in a new way that we've made a covenant with our eyes, that the things that get our attention, the things that we dwell on are the things of our true God. Because... If, if you don't take a stance against it, it will form you. This world will form you, but you have to take a stance against it, a posture back towards the true king. Now, what happens if we dwell upon the nations? Well, what will happen is what happened to the sons of, or to Israel, is what happens when they looked at the nations is they started to adopt the methodology of the nations. They go to, uh, to Samuel and say, appoint for us a king meaning that they were looking at the nations, they saw the methods they used, and they said, that method might work for us. Give us a king. And that's what we do whenever we look at the world and we get our definitions of success and faithfulness from the world is we'll start to use their methods in our lives. We'll say, give us that. And the disconnect here is that they have a spiritual problem. Their leaders are falling short of the call that God has placed on them. It's a spiritual problem. And they should say, "Let's return to the true king." But instead of saying, "Let's return to the true king," they say, "Let's go get a different one." It just doesn't make sense. So like we're being faithless, so let's go be even more faithless. And one scholar put it: He said, "Their spiritual problem had a political manifestation." Whew, that should hit home for us. Their spiritual problem had a political manifestation, or I might put it, for their spiritual wound, they sought a political cure. They <laughs> said, We're falling short. Things are falling apart. Can we get something outside of ourselves that maybe we can control and we can manipulate and we can put in place that we don't have to deal with our responsibility back to God? That's what they did. And I'm just here to say hey, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a citizen of the kingdom of God and you might live here, but this is not your country. You are a foreigner in this land. But because you are belonging to the kingdom of God, you should be a good witness of the kingdom you belong to. So you should want a good president. You should want good legislation, but you should not put your hope in it. Not for a second. Because we know that's not where the true king is. You can't legislate a revival. You can't. The true king is our God. We'll push for the kingdom to come here and now. We'll fight for justice. We want this to happen now, here and now, but we won't put our hope in the kingdom of this world. We won't look at the nations and say, all right, how are they manipulating things? How are they coercing things? Because we want to shift things in our favor. We want to prop the church to look a little bit better. That's not how we operate. We operate on the methods of our God, which is complete dependence upon him. What did Jesus say? He said, I am the vine, meaning that I am the source of life. He said, you are the branches. You're the branches. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. How quickly we forget that. Apart from him, we can do nothing. That's just not the way we operate. I've been picking on politics because that's the low hanging fruit in the room (laughs) that we all know about. But you know, um, this is happening at so many different levels in the church that we're shifting our dependence from God to ourselves and to our methods. You know, instead of having spiritual leaders today, church leaders today that say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grow in my dependence on God and on his word. And I'm going to pray for God to move in power in my congregation. So what they're doing is they're saying, I'm going to grow my spiritual platform through my social media platform. And I'm going to push on that. I'm going to try to get more trendy and relevant. And I'm going to beg, instead of begging God to move, I'm going to beg the world to notice me. And and you know what we have? We also have churchgoers that instead, instead of saying, I'm gonna pray for God to move and I'm gonna offer up my body as a living sacrifice to the one true God. Now what we're saying is we go home and instead of praying, we complain that the preaching isn't good enough, that the worship isn't good enough, that we need more structure, more program. And instead of saying, here's my life, I offered up to you, we're saying, what does my church have to offer me? We take on the life of a consumer and we adopt the methodologies of the world. And that just breaks my heart because you know what? apart from God, we can do nothing, nothing. So I know that the nations are doing their own thing. I know that you have it on your phone. I know you see it on TV. I know you might even see churches and it seems like what they're doing, that's really working. Maybe we need, to, we need a structure like that. We need to do that. Can I just challenge us at First Woodway? Can we not bet on the methods of the world? Can we bet on God? Just bet on God meaning that we're not gonna bet on relevance. We're not gonna bet on just what works in our eyes. We're not gonna bet on how things have always been. We're not gonna bet on what's comfortable, what we think might bring more people in, but we're gonna bet on God's presence here. And if God is present here, things will happen. That means we will double down on prayer. We will double down on scripture. We will double down on fasting. We will double down on longing for God to move here in our midst. Because if we don't, there's a danger that we will take the claims and the visions and the dreams of the nations that are out there and we'll give it a Christian veneer and claim that Jesus Christ is our King. We'll sing all the time, Jesus Christ is King. But when you look at the, what we're doing and the methods that we're operating with, it's actually the nations. It's a fascinating story in John six, Jesus feeds the 5,000 and they're just shocked. It's just, it's unbelievable. There's this really interesting line at the end. It says, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. What's going on there? I mean, after all, Jesus is the true king. He's actually the king. And they're recognizing that he could be a king. Why does Jesus withdraw? Why does he do that? It's because they had their eyes set on something other than the father's will. They wanted to overthrow the Roman occupation and they saw this guy that could feed the 5,000. They said, man, I wonder what he could do with a sword. Let's take him, let's make him king and carry out our desires. But Jesus is like, no, I won't follow you. You are to follow me. My kingdom is not of this world. You're to follow me and my kingdom. And thank goodness that he doesn't follow our methods, right? Thank thank goodness he doesn't operate by the methodology of the world because do you know what looks like failure? Do you know what looks like irrelevant, like you're falling short? Like that's just a failure in the eyes of the world is the cross. They never would have chosen the cross if they seized him as king, but that's where he was headed. He said, no, I have my eyes set not on the nations, not on what you want, not on what anyone else wants. I have my eyes set on the Father and I'm going to claim the prize, which is you. I'm going to die on a cross to win you back to me and to raise you to life. That is success. I know it looks like failure in the eyes of the world, but that's success. That faithfulness is success. Last thing, verse 11. We're gonna read a lot, but I think it's important for us to hear this. God says, hey, Let them have their king. He says, but let them know what their king will do. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards And olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys, he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. If you could say one word that sticks out, it would have to be take. God says, hey, you can have your king. If you don't want me to be king, that's fine. You can have your king, but just know what the kings of this world will do. Just know what the methods of this world will do. They will take and take and take. That's what they'll do. But God in his grace and his mercy and his respect for you as a creation, he'll let you do what you want. He'll let you go in that direction. He'll give you over to it. But just know what you're giving yourself over to. He was talking to the people that he rescued out of slavery from Egypt. And he says, hey, if you wanna go back to slavery, that's fine, you can do that. That, This is the world, that you, you can have that. They will take and they will take and they will take. It reminds me of, there's a book called Destiny of the Republic and Candace Miller, the author, tells a story of the assassination of President Garfield. And it's really interesting because You know, most assassinations that you think of, it's like someone gets shot and then that's it, it's over. But with President Garfield, he was shot and the surgeons and these attendants arrived to the scene to take care of him. And at the time, there was a lot of debate about bacteria and germs and how this all works. And so the head surgeon at the time didn't sterilize his hands because that just wasn't something you did. He didn't sterilize his hands. So he reached in to pull the bullet out with his finger. He didn't die that day he died 79 days later from sepsis. It was the the bacteria, the the infection that broke out in his body that began to take and take and take from his life. And a lot of us, what we have done is we've sought the methods of this world. We've sought the kings of this world. And guess what? It might've stopped the bleeding for a moment. It might've stopped it for a moment. Just like like Israel, they might have had a little bit of structure for a moment, like, okay, now we got these people in place, we have some kind of control. It might have done it for a moment, but eventually it would take, and it would take. And that's what the kings of this world will offer you. You'll go to them to be liberated and you'll end up a slave. You know, the nation the, the ways of the nations and their kings, they want to take from you to prop up their insecure kingdom. Jesus asks all of you because he wants to heal all of you. He said, I want you to be full in the kingdom. I want you to be born again. I want all of you because I want to raise all of you back to life. The ways of the kings of this world, they want to satisfy their greed, so they want to take and take from you. But Jesus, he wants to satisfy his love, so he wants all of you. That's our God. The choice is very simple, very clear, Who do we want to serve? I want to serve the one true king. I I, I want to go back to the one true king. I want to turn to him to serve him. I don't want to look to the nations. I don't want to adopt their methodology. I want the one true king. I will not sell my birthright for what the nations have on top. I'm not going to. I'm going to turn back to the true king.